Hey everybody, for the last two weeks of the year, we're going to be playing a couple of interviews we did on our weekday FS Insider podcast that we think you're really going to enjoy. Our goal, as always, is to focus in on the underlying trends and long-term investment themes at work in the market today ahead of the consensus and what you'll often hear in the mainstream news. We believe this particular interview with David Abramson, the Chief U.S. Strategist and Director of Research at Alpine Macro, provided a tremendous amount of insight into the longer-term investment environment, not just as we approach 2023, of course, but also for the next several years as well. David discusses the key takeaways from their large investment conference held in October, including the expectation for ongoing outperformance in the energy sector, a potential 10-year curse overhanging the tech space, and why volatility will likely be a system feature and not a bug in the years ahead. As always, if you're not already a subscriber to our weekday FS Insider podcast and would like to gain access to all of our interviews airing three days during the week with top-name strategists, investors, and book authors, just go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. And if you weren't already aware, all of our podcasts can be listened to both on our website and also through a podcast app on your mobile device. So without further ado, we'd like to wish all of you a Merry Christmas and a Happy Holiday Season, and hope you enjoy today's interview with David Abramson, which originally aired on FS Insider November 15th. FS Insider, a premium edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. Today's host is Senior Editor Chris Sheridan. David Abramson is the Chief U.S. Strategist and Director of Research at Alpine Macro, and he joins us today. And David, I know that Alpine Macro just conducted an investment conference in New York last month. Lots of great speakers, and you identified a number of key themes that came out of that. Let's start with one of the key themes, which has been a repeating or recurring subject on our podcast, about the outlook for energy what was the key takeaway when it came to the energy sector from that conference? Yeah, I think I came away from that conference even more confident that energy is going to be a cyclical and a medium-term winner. Conventional energy alternative is more complicated, but when I say conventional, I'm kind of also adding in natural gas and nuclear. And the reason I say that is that we've felt for some time some time that there's this time inconsistency problem where even if you feel that crude oil just will not be needed long-term, say 20, 30, 40 years out, which is very contentious, who knows? But even if you feel that, it makes it very, very difficult to get the oil to market when you know you need it, which is three to five years from now, because which company is going to take out a long-term energy exploration project if they know that there's not going to be much demand for it, if you have a very high fixed cost, these sort of offshore drilling, that kind of stuff. So we've known that for a long time. And so what, what, can, what strengthened my conviction level for this energy theme was two parts. The first was what we've learned over the past year from the energy efficiencies and the sort of potential for energy chaos when you get some unexpected event like what happened in the Ukraine. And second of all, 
the potential for political instability in key energy producing areas, primarily the Middle East, uh, the odds, a couple of speakers talked about it, but the odds of difficulties related to Iran, the competition between the Saudis and Iran, the potential for instability in Iraq. These are all very big topics that are very hard to predict, but when you take them all together, it suggests that we're, we're going to need that energy going forward. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether a specific institution will be allowed to invest in fossil fuels. Uh, maybe what will have to happen is a number of companies will just continue to trade cheap and they'll be taken out privately. That's, of course, a question mark, but it's a big theme that came up and it increased my personal conviction level that you want to have exposure to energy companies in safe areas, North America being um, the prime candidate for that. You know, I'm sure you're familiar with Jeff Curie at Goldman Sachs and what he's been talking about, you know, uh, I think ever since 2020, but this idea of revenge of the old economy, right? So new economy stocks, tech largely saw the lion's share of investment and capital flowing into it after the commodity bubble finally peaked in around 2011. And then, uh, you know, basically all that money flooded into into the new economy. And now we've seen that peak as of really late last year. The capital is now flooding out of the new economy and back into the old economy. And that's what we're seeing with, you know, energy stocks and some of these other areas of the commodity sector. Um, so what do you see from a longer term perspective when it comes to energy and commodities more broadly? Once you get beyond five years, then you have some question marks because it's very hard to, um, to predict the pace of technological innovation when it comes to alternative energy, green energy, the green transition, things that previously were supported by governments and really heavily subsidized. And now it's a little bit more, little bit more of a question mark. But I think I made this point the last time we spoke that you just don't try to predict too much when you have the best and brightest scientists in the business working on technology to do with alternative energy. But I think it's very safe to say that what we've learned in the past couple of years is that even when you throw money at this and stakeholders are pushing very hard to get away from fossil fuels and move towards green energy, that that doesn't speed up the pace of the transition. You have a big stock flow problem, for example, with cars. You can have a big change in the flow, new demand for electric vehicles, and you can have a big shift there, and it just doesn't move the needle on the stock. So there are some very exciting things that are happening in China, for example, and have happened with battery companies, EV companies in a very short period of time. But again, it's affecting the flow and not the stock. And so there are a couple of takeaways here for Jeff Curry's argument uh, or, or paradigm. The first is that there will continue to be vast amounts of new investment in alternative energy, or again, if you want to call it old economy, sort of the use of energy or, or fuels as opposed to technological innovation, number one. Number two, what you notice is that these, this technological innovation, it comes in waves and it gets dispersed over time. And there have been three distinct waves since the 1970s. You can see it, for example, if you look at um, communications and information technology investment, capital spending in the US, there's three clear waves. And the third wave started 
around 2013, 2014 with artificial intelligence, cloud computing, there was a whole big wave. Uh, so for example, don't want to go on and on about this, but with Amazon, they had negative operating margin in 2013. They were investing in basically the user experience. AWS was just starting to happen. And it turned out that it was a huge success. But in 2013, there was a legitimate debate as to whether this capital spending was just going to go up in smoke, whether it wasn't going to benefit uh, Amazon at all. So if you fast forward to now, we're almost 10 years into that wave of technological boom. And again, the reasonable assumption is that after that 10-year wave that has benefited so many of these big tech companies that are now five companies are over one-fifth of the S&P 500, that you're due for at least some kind of a consolidation or a lull. But, But again, you don't know. Just like with the green transition, it may be that these amazing companies like Google and Amazon, they'll just continue the pace of technological innovation, and that will diffuse through the rest of the economy and technological capital spending will just stay very strong. But I wouldn't bet on that as of right now. Hmm. Okay. Just to clarify on energy again, um, you believe that energy will both be a cyclical and longer term outperformer, but in terms of time frame, uh, it sounds like you're looking out more over the next two to three years, looking out, you know, five, 10 years, obviously is much more difficult, but that's the the time frame you're looking at is probably next two to three years. That's correct. So it's actually two time frames that we are and have been quite excited about energy. The first is the next 12 to 18 months. And so that would be tied not just to energy specific developments, although it's in line, Uh, but also to what happens with the dollar. So the fact that oil prices have held up, despite the fact that the dollar has gone through the roof, that's something that tells us is us. If the dollar ever tends to weaken and there's a growth rebalancing around the world, which is our baseline scenario for next year for both Europe and for Asia, then uh, you get a cyclical, that's 12 to 18 months, Uh, outperformance of energy and anything that benefits from a weaker dollar. There's a very tight correlation between internationally oriented U.S. company stock relative to domestically oriented company stocks and the U.S. dollar inverted. So it's going to be a go international type theme. Now, the two to three year horizon is more It's not really tied to the business cycle or the US dollar. It's this time inconsistency problem that I mentioned where you're just going to need to have more capital spending. And it's just not happening yet. Certainly in the shale patch, um, if you take a look at what what happened before 2015 and the response of the rig count, capital spending, and the actual production in in the shale patch, it's just completely different right now. You have very quite high prices, and there's a reluctance to do that capital spending. And that will pay off for the energy stocks two, three, four years out. Does this translate to the commodity sector more broadly, or is this mostly just energy? So uh, that's a question I get asked very quick, frequently because a lot of our clients are not in the US and they want to know, well, should I invest in China-related commodities, the bulks, iron ore, coal, the base metals? Uh, and, and the answer is, It depends on what happens in China. So what concerns us and three of us at Alpine are former China strategists. So we all have, um, we all have our own biases and views. And in, you know, 
insights into what's going on in China, but the policy visibility is probably the, the, the least that it's been certainly since all of us were China watchers. I think that uh, my colleagues Chen and Yan and myself too, uh, we have always felt that we, you know, we have a handle on what the authorities are thinking, where they're headed, and that will help us to get the cycle in this sort of non-energy commodity, non-energy, non-precious metals, at least. And we don't, we don't feel a lot of confidence. I mean, I think if if we were to take a bet, then we would say you want to be long base metals because the dollar is going to be weak, and a number of these base metals are green oriented, but that's a much less strong view than energy. Now, if you talk about the precious metals, gold and silver, that's something where you could have a very nice combination the next few years. When gold tends to do well is when you have a combination of dollar weakness and upward pressure on the equity risk premium. And that's the kind of thing probably for the next couple of years um, that will be a staple. So uh, definitely excited about precious metals, not the next few months, but over the next 12, 18, 24 months. Hmm. That's very interesting because we just spoke with Jeff Christian at CPM Group and their view for quite a while has been that the next major bull run in precious metals would occur around the 2023 to 2025 timeframe, that that's over that next two years, essentially, is when they're expecting that to happen. And uh, like you said, they they believe that a lot of the safe haven investment capital that flooded into the dollar and has bid the dollar up, that that's now going to shift partially back into metals, and we will see a dollar peak out. And then there's a number of other tailwinds lining up for precious metals in that time frame. So it sounds like your views are aligned there. Well, uh, Jeff Christian, I have huge respect for his his expertise, and we happen to, uh, we have disagreed in the past, but I happen to agree with him right now. I do think that one of the things that could help gold, because I, it's important to know that with this, with fiat money, fiat money can be very credible. It can be very strong. The US dollar has been very strong for a while now, seems to have a pretty tough central bank. Uh, but gold is, it's a very narrow entry and exit door. There's not a lot of gold in the world, um, especially if you X out the um, the uh, the gold that goes to things like jewelry demand. And so if you have something, for example, uh, where there are a few countries that are worried about what happened with Russia this year and the holdings of Russian foreign exchange reserves getting frozen, that uh, they weren't really, that wasn't really on their minds beforehand. And now it is. And they might, of course, they might hold euros, but those could get frozen too. And so just holding a bit more in gold, you know, China has a, a several trillion dollars in foreign exchange reserves. They can't shift that all to gold, but if they shift it at the margin, that will definitely affect the price positively. Now, David, as we discussed already, you know, one of your key themes from this investment conference was that uh, energy stocks will likely outperform and that you're looking at a longer-term performance, both on a cyclical basis, 12 to 18 months, but then also on a two- to three-year horizon as well when you look at some of these capital cycle measures, which are longer-term in nature. Another theme is that, and you had mentioned this a little bit earlier, and I want to quote what you have written here in this recent report that you sent out, but it's that big tech may well stage a powerful rebound in 2023, but could suffer from the 10-year curse over the long term. Do you mind explaining that for our audience? Sure. So the great, but also the negative thing about financial markets is that they don't always trade at fair value. Uh, so that gives me a job. Uh, but there's 
the markets, as Keynes said, they can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. And so one of the features that we tend to see, and this is something that Rushir Sharma brought up, um, who's just a really big thinker. Some of you may have seen his articles in the Financial Times, but he was chief global strategist of Morgan Stanley Investment Management, just a really big thinker. And he simply showed a chart. And we, my colleague Chen has shown versions of this chart too, that it just so happens that every 10 years or so, there's a big focus of investors and it's exciting story. It's a real story. It's not just smoke and mirrors, but it gets way overdone. And so my personal favorite, although there are many examples, is in the 19, uh, late 1960s and early 1970s, the Nifty 50 companies. And these were 50 US companies like Polaroid and Kodak, and they were all just world-beating companies, you know, just dominant. And so what happened was they got pumped up like crazy. And it got so extreme that in 1973, which was a terrible year for the world and the US economy, oil prices quadrupled in a very short period of time. Pretty much all of the S&P 500 fell, except for these 50 companies. And so again, there are many, many examples of this 10-year curse those companies stayed just great companies through the 1970s, but their stock price didn't go up. And in, in some cases, it fell as well. And so this is our concern about big tech, that these companies, they're fantastic, but there are little chinks in the armor. But even if they stay fantastic, you may not get great investment returns. Now, we have done a lot of work on margins and the margins of the five, the FAAMG companies, five or seven companies, they just went crazy, massive margin expansion through the pandemic. And so if there's a mean reversion back to just what was normal in these companies that were amazing before the pandemic, you know, whatever their margins were beforehand, uh, those stock prices will be in great trouble. And we're starting to see some concerns about um, addiction to digital, digital advertising, uh, amongst some of these companies. Anyhow, it's a long and short of saying that if you were to bet, even if big tech stays amazing, like the nifty 50 companies in the 70s, maybe you'll just get meager investment investment returns. If there is certain things wrong, and that's why we've done all this work on margins, and we'll see in the next couple of years how sustainable that r big rise in margins was for those five few companies. I think it was, there was a big... Uh, widening of margins in the pandemic for the S&P 500, but about 30% of that widening in margins was attributable to just five companies. So that's the 10-year curse. Uh, of course, what we're excited about, I don't know if I would push it to 10 years, but let's say five years is the, the whole conventional energy story where it's under-owned, under-invested, under-loved, and still cheap. Yeah, yeah. And so it sounds like in your report, you're saying operating margins for big tech may have further downside to go. Um, and in that context, where does your recession outlook fit into this? Because, I mean, there's some models like the Bloomberg economics model, 100% odds of a recession over the next 12 months. The conference board leading economic index is forecasting, you know, high odds of a recession. So put this in the context of what we could see in terms of a U.S. or global recession, uh, either imminently or, you know, soon on the horizon. Sure. So I think there's a huge difference between an economist and a strategist. So I started my career as an economist. I was at the Bank of Canada, two degrees in economics, 
Um, and I love, I love macro. Uh, but one of the things that's different about being a strategist, which has been most of my career, is that you can get the macro call right and you may not get the markets right. It just depends if it's on the front page of every newspaper uh, or if it's already in the price, et cetera, et cetera. And so our big concern right now is that everyone is expecting a recession right now. It's a widespread prediction. And so my response is twofold because our baseline view is recession. You know, the Fed has raised interest rates very, very quickly, but not just that. Um, it's pulled down financial conditions and it's pulled up the dollar, which tightens the squeeze. So our baseline is recession, but my response to that, the sort of insight is that there aren't a lot of major imbalances in the US economy right now. It's so different than 2006, 2007, for example, where the banking system, in retrospect, the banking system was very, very vulnerable. Um, the housing market and the consumer was very, very overextended. You really just don't see that right now. I mean, if if the banking system got overexposed to the housing market and the housing market is overextended right now, it would be a miracle because it's so soon after uh, that once in a generation meltdown. So, but you cannot completely rule out a severe recession, which is not part of our baseline scenario. So I'll, I'll talk mainly about the economics, but our view is very simple. Our baseline view is over the next three months, there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty about what will happen in the economy, what will happen in markets, what the Fed will do, et cetera. But as you get deep further out into next year, six to 12 months out, our conviction level is much higher, which is bond yields will be lower, stock prices will be higher. It's going to be a much better environment because the Fed has engineered this rise in real interest rates. And once they get what they want, they won't have any power over financial conditions. They can tighten financial conditions now with a few words because it's credible. They, they could ramp up their, their interest rate hikes. But once inflation is in a clear downtrend, uh, they either have to just sit tight or lower interest rates, even if the stock market goes through the roof. And so the big two risks around a moderate recession, which I think is a very reasonable call with high probability, no problem with the Bloomberg indicator, et cetera. We do our own work, come to that conclusion. But if it's a severe recession, then you get a financial, it's because of a financial accident or something systemic that was geared to an expectation that interest rates would stay very low for an extended period of time. And you see these blowups. There's already been lots of problems with cryptocurrencies, et cetera. That's not really what I'm talking about. It's something that's systemic, that kind of starts to cave in on itself until there's an aggressive monetary response. That's one thing to watch. But the other thing to watch, Chris, uh, is the potential for a soft landing. And so what concerns us, because that's not our baseline view, what concerns us is the relative performance of the stock market to the bond market right now is consistent with is not consistent with a recession. Basically, bond yields have gone up quite significantly in the last couple of months, and the stock market has really hung in there, especially if you X out those technology stocks. And so what a soft landing would do is it would make our risk asset forecast correct, but it would make our bond call wrong because if you have a soft landing, the real interest rates stay high. So right now, tipped yields are about 2%, 1.5%, 2%. We expect them to come down quite substantially next year. 
But if it's a soft landing, they won't come down at all. Another theme that came out of this conference that you cite in your recent report is uh, volatility and how this will be a system feature and not a bug of the world in the coming years. Do you mind explaining um, what it is that either some of the speakers or you see looking out in the years ahead? Sure. So uh, this is something where uh, I learned quite a bit from our conference. So Steve Polaz, who is the former governor of the Bank of Canada, which I worked and my, my wife worked there as well. She actually worked for Steve a very, very long time ago. And he's written a book that um, if you're not um, something with a someone who has a very big economics background, but you're curious about this stuff and it will definitely affect you, this is the book that you should you should read. Uh, his name is Steve Polas, uh, very well known. You just punch in and the book is this year. Basically what he argues, and I have a lot of sympathy for, is he says, there are a number of factors that not only will they generate more volatility in the future, uh, so get used to it. Get used to higher volatility, not necessarily positive or negative, but just wilder swings in, relate, in relation to greater shocks that we have less ability to predict, more one standard deviation, two standard deviation type events. And so just to give you a couple examples, climate change, inequality, you know, the, the listeners are very familiar with this. But he said he goes in and talks about why that's going to give us more volatility than the types of things we've seen in the past, because we saw a global financial crisis. There was inflation in the 1970s. There have been uh, uh, Iran-Iraq war, Iraq war, all kinds of things, of course. But this is different. This is something where there's just going to be a lot more uncertainty about policy responses going forward. So that's one aspect of the volatility to, to come. The second aspect, which also came up, up at the conference, was discussions by David Asher, Marco Papich, uh, people that are very in the know where politics, economics, policy, and military strategy intersect with each other. And I won't go on and on, Chris, but the really key feature here as to why you should expect more volatility is that even if there are lots of countries and people around the world that are not happy with some of the things that, that U.S. policy has done outside of the U.S., it's impossible to argue that if you didn't have a hegemon, a general power, one power that's much stronger than the, than, um, the other powers in the rest of the world, enforcing global rules, you can't argue that that was destabilizing. It made things stable. Now, you punish the rule breakers or the ones that you uh, think might break the rules, and that doesn't make you happy, but it does lead to greater stability. That era is finished. It's over. So there are a number of possible replacements. It could be that it results in a rivalry between the US and China and nothing else, that Russia is unimportant despite what's happened this year. But probably what's going to happen is it's a multipolar world. And in a multipolar world, you don't have the hegemon, the big power saying, if you two go to war, I'm going to punish both of you. You get all kinds of regional skirmishes, and that leads to a tremendous amount of uncertainty and volatility. So there's lots more I could say on that topic, but I think I'll just leave it there. Now, in terms of practical things, for the next three months, 
There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that volatility to clean up. Russia, Ukraine, Fed-related uncertainty. It makes it very, very hard to predict. A very fast pace of increase in mortgage rates. We don't really know what that means for the housing market. But what we can say is over the next three months, there's a tremendous amount of volatility. And so if there's an asset that you favor longer term, you should be looking in the next three months to take advantage of that volatility because you may get a great buying opportunity that you won't see for a few years. Well, David, if we were to summarize some of what we discussed today, um, you're looking at a 12 to 18 month outperformance of energy, as well as a longer term two to three year horizon of outperformance. And that's when you look at some of these longer term capital cycle measures. Gold and silver could see a nice combination of factors the next couple years in alignment like we discussed with our interview with Jeff Krishna at CPM Group, who also happens to have the same view. Your base case is for recession, but not severe given the lack of major imbalances. And you're looking at a higher volatility regime in the years ahead when we look at this longer-term backdrop of geopolitical instability, lack of visibility with policy, either from China or some of these other events. Um, Anything you'd like to add to that, or is that all about sound correct? No, that pretty much sounds correct. A tremendous amount of uncertainty, but... um uh, hopefully the next time we speak there, some of it will be clear and there'll be new sources of uncertainty, but that definitely touches all the bases of our key views. All right. Well, once again, David Abramson, Chief U.S. Strategist and Director of Research at Alpine Macro. David, it was a pleasure to speak with you on our show again, and we definitely look forward to having you on in the future. Fantastic. Thanks again, Chris. Good talking to you. If you have any questions or feedback on what we discussed today, or if you'd like to get in touch with us about our asset management or financial planning services, you can do so by going to financialsense.com and clicking where it says contact us. As always, don't forget to spread the word about FS Insider with your friends and family and share our podcast on all of your social media channels. For FS Insider, I'm Chris Sheridan. Thanks for listening. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company. Companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.